0: Good morning again. I'm going to begin this morning by uh, reading from Luke uh, 21. Uh, Starting in verse 1, it says, While Jesus was in the temple, he watched the rich people dropping their gifts in the collection box. Then Then a poor widow came by, and dropped in two small coins. I tell you the truth, Jesus said. This poor widow has given more than all the rest of them. Thank you, Murray. This poor widow has given more than all the rest of them, for they have given a tiny part of their surplus, but she, poor as she is, has given everything she has. We're doing a series on generosity. And in Luke 21, we, we have the story of this, this poor widow... Uh, and from the outside looking in, it doesn't look like she gives much. And we're having technical difficulties. All right, see if this works here. Um, from the outside looking in, it doesn't look like she gives much. And uh, and sometimes in in church culture, we 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 can compare ourselves with the person next to us. And we look at other people and we use that as a, as a measuring stick of generosity. How, how generous is that person? How generous am I? And the fascinating thing about the story is, is from the person that's just observing the event. It doesn't look like the, women, the woman really gives anything. Uh, but we know that the others were giving in their richness and she was giving in her poverty. And God measures generosity not by the size of the gift but by the size of the sacrifice. God measures generosity not by the size of the gift, but the size of the sacrifice. And you know that you've given sacrificially when your giving impacts your lifestyle. And so as we look at Nehemiah this morning, I I would invite us to take a look in the mirror and say, am I giving in a sacrificial way that actually impacts my lifestyle? Or am I giving out of my wealth and my richness? And maybe on the outside, uh, it looks like I'm a very generous person. Uh, but only only you know if your generosity is actually uh, a generosity of sacrifice. And I believe that God is calling us all to a level of sacrificial generosity. Uh, that's what he demonstrated, that's what he initiated when he sent his son to earth to die for our sins, a sacrificial generosity, this God of generosity who gives of him very his very self. And the followers of Jesus actually emulate that, and we live a life of sacrificial generosity. And that's not seen from the outside, but it's actually uh, only seen on a heart level. And so we're going to hold up a mirror this morning and say, are you giving in a way that impacts your life? Because God measures generosity not by the size of the gift, but by the size of the sacrifice. True generosity doesn't stop with possessions. It starts with them. So last week we talked about our treasure, our money, we talked about tithing and the the importance of of giving, and that it's actually less about the church. It's less about the rule and it's about our heart because God says that where your treasure is there, your heart is also. And so if you want to know where your heart is, you look at your checkbook, you look at your your bank account, look at where you're spending money, and it'll tell you something about your heart. And so we learn we learn actual generosity through financing, because that actually trains our heart. It it teaches our heart something, but it doesn't stop there. It just starts there, because the treasure is the closest indication of where our heart is. Giving money is the training wheels to growing a generous heart. Anybody taught a kid how to ride a bike? Put up your hand, yeah? A few of you guys... Uh, Any of you guys still on training wheels? Any adults still on training wheels? No? I remember teaching. I love biking. I remember trying to get my kids into biking all at a very young age. Um, And uh, before there was push bikes. You know, now kids don't have training wheels. They have push bikes, right? They learn how to run these run bikes that they run with, which are pretty neat. Our youngest son uh, started on a push bike, but my other two started with training wheels. And I remember when Joel, my oldest, was learning how to ride a bike and he had, he had training wheels and he would cruise around the street on training wheels. And then there comes that, that fearful moment where you actually take the training wheels off. And, and I remember taking the training wheels off and, and I sent uh, Joel down the sidewalk. Um, you know, that was my first mistake. Do it on the grass, not on the pavement. Uh, but I sent him on the sidewalk and he biffed so hard um, he scraped himself up, he was crying and uh, and he wanted to quit. he just wanted to quit, and i said you can 't quit now because uh, I knew that in in his mind if he quit now that he would he would have a hard time getting back on the bike because of that tragic event right so uh, so I got him back on the bike right away and uh, and I had to make sure he had enough success and enough confidence that he could he could keep going right and once he had that, he was on his way and, and training wheels and money is actually the training wheels of generosity. And if you're struggling with being a generous person, start with your finances. Start with just stretching yourself financially to, to give in a sacrificial way that actually impacts your lifestyle. And it might feel like you crash and burn a little bit or you gotta, you gotta respond, but I encourage you to push through and to keep going because that's the actual piece that trains our heart. It's the actual piece that gives us confidence to continue in a way of generosity. And we know that God gives so that we can give. That's a fundamental principle since the beginning of the Bible. God prospers me not to raise my standard of living, but to raise my standard of giving, as Randy Alcorn said. God prospers you not to raise your standard of living, but to raise your standard of giving. And we ended last Sunday in talking about um, how the finances is actually the one area that we can test God in. So if we're generous in our finances, God will bless you. And That blessing is not necessarily financial. It could, that blessing could like a lot, look like a lot of things, but the purpose of blessing isn't the end in and of itself. The blessing was actually given so that we could be a blessing to others. This was established, like I said, in the very uh, in the beginning of your your Bible sto- your biblical story with Abraham. God makes a covenant with Abraham and says, "You're blessed to be a blessing." Blessed to be a blessing. This is the covenant that God created with Abraham. I will be your God. You will be my people. I will bless you, and through you, I will bless the nations. You are blessed to be a blessing. And this is the context of Nehemiah, the story of Nehemiah. In 586, King Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians... Uh, conquered and captured the Jews. Jerusalem's walls were destroyed, knocked down. People were deported. People became slaves. But God didn't forsake His people. You know there was uh, there was a few decades of captivity and slavery there. But God didn't forsake His people. God moved to the heart of King Cyrus uh, at the beginning of the Persian Empire. Uh, for King Cyrus to let some Jews go. And when he let them go, around 540 B.C. or so, they went back to Jerusalem and they found their city in ruins. And so Nehemiah's heart was broken for his city. Nehemiah had this dream to rebuild the walls of his city. This was the the city that the temple of God was in. And so it it was a sacred city to the Jewish people. So rebuilding the wall was not just about a wall, but it was actually about a covenant because the temple was the place that marked them as a distinct people because this is where God actually came in a unique place on earth, different than the rest of earth. God's presence was manifested in this temple. And so it wasn't just about a wall, but it was about their identity, uh, their uniqueness as a people, their covenant with God that... uh, that he was their God, that that they were God's people, and God was blessing them to be a blessing to others. This is at the heart of why Nehemiah wanted to rebuild the wall. He was trying to rebuild and reestablish identity, purpose, mission. And so he had a dream. And many of us have a dream. Many of us have a dream for what? The church could be like, for what our life could be like. And many of us like the final result. We like, you know, if we could find the perfect church, that'd be great. You know, if I could live out my dream, that would be great. But we often get stuck in the space between. Many of us like the dream, we like the finished product, but we don't engage in the sacrifice in between. We don't engage in the work in between. And Nehemiah 3 is about work. Nehemiah three is this space between where the people of God actually engage in the work of God, where they don't just sit around dreaming about what Jerusalem could be like, they don't just wait for Jerusalem to be this final, beautiful, finished product, uh, but they get their hands dirty and they lean in together. So this is this is Nehemiah chapter three, and I won't read all of Nehemiah chapter three because you will, uh, yeah, you will fall asleep. There's a lot of names. It's one of those Bible passages where it's just like name after name, uh, but we'll start here in G- Nehemiah chapter three, verses one, verse, verse one, verse two, and the pattern goes: some guy's name, son of some son of this father, made repairs to this specific part of the wall, and next to him was this guy, and then the pattern repeats over and over again for uh, many verses. Uh, but we'll we'll pick a few of them here. Then Eliashib, everybody say Eliashib, the high priest. Eliashib, the high priest, and the other priests started to rebuild at the sheep gate. They dedicated it and set up its doors, building the wall as far as the tower of the hundred, which they dedicated, and the tower of Hananel. People from the town of Jericho worked next to them, and beyond them was Zakur, son of Imri. So Nehemiah 3 starts out like this. The whole chapter kind of reads like this. And so we start off with Eliashib, the high priest. And if we go to the next slide, we'll see a picture of the wall. And so, if you can read that, uh, Eliashib starts at the sheep gate, and the whole chapter actually moves uh, counterclockwise around around the wall. And so it goes in order. And we see a list here of the different gates that are being rebuilt, uh, the different people that are rebuilding it, and and so that's kind of the outline of Nehemiah three. But it starts with Eliashib at the sheep gate, and this is the place of worship. This is the uh, this is the place of sacrifice. And the sheep, uh, even the imagery of a sheep, we would know uh, as the Bible story goes on, it becomes the, the symbolic animal of Jesus. And I don't want to stretch the story too far, but I think it's, it's interesting that this is the place that Nehemiah 3 starts and the place where it ends. And We start with Jesus. We start with worship. It's the beginning and the end. Jesus says "I." I'm the Alpha, the Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. And when it comes to generosity, if we don't start with Jesus, we don't end with Jesus, we're going to build something other than the kingdom of Jesus. It starts with worship. It starts with a heart of worship. And the end goal is actually uh, the glory of Jesus, the glory of his kingdom, the building of his kingdom. That's the beginning and that's the end. So, Nehemiah 3, we got Eliashib starting at the sheep gate, building. And then next, in Nehemiah 3, verse 3 to 5, have, the fish gate was built by the sons of Hassanah. They laid the beams, set up its doors, and installed its bolts and bars. Meramoth, son of Uriah and grandson of Hakaz. If you're, if you're going to have a baby soon, this is, Nehemiah 3 is actually a great place to look for baby names. <laughs> if you're like, I want this unique biblical baby name that nobody else has this is the place you got to go to Hakoz, like that's a, that's great uh, grandson of Hakkaz repaired the next section of the wall beside him were Meshulam son of Bar- Barakiah and grandson of Meshezebel there's another good one and then Zadok son of Baana. next were the people from Tekoa through their leaders refused to uh, though their leaders refused to work with the construction supervisors you can understand why I'm not reading the whole the whole chapter So we got Hananiah here. He's a manufacturer of perfumes, not a builder of walls. It's a little bit like a pastor going down to Mexico to build a house. (laughs) He's he's stepping outside of his comfort zone. He's He's not a professional, but he's leaning in to the work of God. He's leaning in and playing his role. You know, when I was uh, younger, in grade nine, uh, I was—I made uh, my—I made the senior high boys' uh, basketball team, uh, but I was just a bench warmer, right? So I just spent most of the season on the bench. I got a couple of garbage minutes in games that we blew somebody out, and uh, coach would be like, "Hey, man, you can have a couple of minutes," you know, thanks, coach. Um, And so that was kind of my role in grade nine. Just, you know, a couple minutes a game, my mom could get her out, out her phone and, or her camera. They didn't take pictures of phones back then. Um, they didn't even have cell phones back then, I don't think. But the couple minutes a game where I was kind of spotlighted, and that was, that was it. I didn't even travel with the team. So uh, I, was, I played at home games, but when the team went on the road, coach was kind of like, you know, it's just kind of a waste. You're a waste of space. Um... So join us for home games, join us for praxis, but you don't need to come on the road. Uh, we, had a, we had a very good team, uh, mostly grade 11 players at the time. The, the team was uh, ranked pretty high in the province, and we went to provincials. And we got to uh, our first game in provincials, and we met a team from Brandon called Elton. Everybody say Elton. So Elton, a uh, bunch of grade 11s as well they had uh uh their starting lineup uh, their center was 6 foot 9 uh that's their five spot if you if you know the numbers in basketball their uh their power forward their four spot was 6 foot 7 uh and then their three spot was 6 foot 6 that was their you know they were huge and then they and then they had a couple of 6 foot tall guys that were their two guards our team uh our tallest guy was six foot three. Our next guy was six feet, which was my oldest brother. And then, uh, and then we, had a, we had a whole bunch of guys that were like 5'10", five, 5'11". Five, uh, and so we played Elton, and it's like this completely different styles of basketball. They're big and slow, and we're small and fast. It was a close game. Uh, we lost that game by one possession. I remember, I remember the last possession... Uh, I won't blame it on the refs, but it was the refs' fault. But we we lost, we lost that game in the final possession. First game of provincials, we went to the consolation side. Uh, next year, so our main main guys were in grade twelve. My older brother, his friends, grew up playing basketball together. They're in grade twelve, and Elton's in grade twelve. We we go away to the first tournament, and. Uh, and Elton wins the tournament. We played them in the final. They beat us again in the final. Uh, we go to the next tournament. We play, we play Elton in the final, and we won. And that was kind of the two tournament games we played them during the year. And then we get to the inner zone game to see who would go to provincials. And who did we play in the inner zone game? Elton, that's right. And, uh, and we lost to them in the inner zone game. Uh, but because we had such a good record, we got to play a wild card game. Uh, so, you know, a couple of teams that didn't quite make the cut, but they had good records, uh, played off to get in the final spot of Provincials. And luckily enough, we were able to beat that team, so we went to Provincials um, anyways. So we uh, won our first game. We won our second game of Provincials. We, we go into our third game in the finals uh, versus Alton. You got it. So competing styles. Um, we... Our team is very good. Their team is very good. We, we had a point guard that he had 128 points in three games at provincials. So uh, some, I know we're in a, I'm on a hockey town here. You guys are like, oh, what does that mean? Um, I don't know what, what, the, what the hockey equivalent of that would be like. Like five points a game? I don't know. Brent, help me out. Yeah, five, points a game. five points a game, something like that. <laughs> I coach basketball with, with Brent. And, um, so... Great, great player, and, uh, and we're in the provincial final. My coach, and, and so again, in grade 10 year, same team basically, I'm riding the bench the whole year, and, uh, and it was me, There's a couple of grade 11s and then a whole bunch of grade 12s. Coach plays the same six guys the whole game, and, uh, and it's close, we're, it's like a five-point spread, going back and forth like the whole game we we were down by about five points the whole game Um, and with with a few minutes left my older brother uh, fouls out and so my older brother was the six foot six foot guy second tallest guy on our team remember how big the second tallest guy on the other team was six seven uh my coach looks down on the bench you know i'm the youngest guy on the team and uh and he says matt you're in but there's two mats on the bench. There was a grade 12 mat and there was me. And so I just assumed he was talking about the other Matt. He's like, No, Matt, Dick, you're in. It's like, I did, You didn't even let me travel with the team. <laughs> and I was like, The most important few minutes of the game, you're asking me to go into the game. And so I get in the game, and the six foot seven guy's like, As soon as I step on the floor, he's like, Oh, mismatch, mismatch. Like the whole gym knows a mismatch. Five foot ten, scrawny guy who weighs 130 pounds, soaking wet, guarding the six foot seven guy, and he gets he gets the he gets the ball, and I just start fouling him, hacking him. Because that's all I can do. And there was there was another another grade 12 guy on the team, his name was Pinky. And you can guess how big Pinky was just by his nickname. Um, Pinky about the same size as me. I'm like, Pinky, come on, so we're double teaming, like they keep giving it to the six foot seven guy. We're double teaming and we're fouling him. Luckily he was only making about uh, one out of every two free throws, shooting 50% of the free throw line. So we just kept putting on the line. That's all I could do. Uh, And it was enough to close the gap into one possession. So again, we're in a one possession game with Elton, 30 seconds left or so. Um, It was their ball, but there was a loose ball on the floor and there was a pile up and our point guard Get, and his name was Chris, gets, gets on the ball underneath this pile up, and he's yelling for a timeout, and the referee actually gives us the timeout. So we're down by one point, one possession of time left, and our coach gets us together, and he draws up this, he draws up this genius play. And, and I wish I could have a whiteboard so I could draw it out for you, but ba- basically what he says is, Chris, who's our point guard, 128 points in three games, he's like, you're here, and you're going to get the ball, so the net's here, right? And uh, you four guys that aren't Chris, uh, you're going to go stand in the corner of the gym. <laughs> like, really? That's your, that's your play? Like, provincial championship play? Give the ball to Chris, get everybody else in the corner of the gym? Yes, that's my play. So I was good at that. I, I can do that. I, <laughs> you know, I learned that role, getting out of the way. I did that the last two years. So I went and stood in the corner of the gym. Chris comes in. And he's dribbling out the clock, and uh, the guy in front of him stumbles as he, as he makes a move on him. And when he stumbles, Chris pulls up for the jump shot. And at that point, everybody runs to get the rebound. Right? So, all those big trees, six foot seven, six foot nine guys, going in for the rebound. I'm just trying not to make a mistake. Uh, so, I kind of stay out of the mix a little bit, standing back, and, and Chris gets in there, falls a the shot gets in there, jumps above all those guys, and can't catch the ball, but just gets it enough to tip it. So he tips it. Uh, and the, he tipped the ball back to me. And have you ever watched, like, junior high... No offense to junior high girls. Have you ever watched junior high girls basketball? <laughs> Sorry, elementary. Let's go elementary. Let's... <laughs> I, could, I could feel the offense in the room as soon as those words left my mouth. Uh. (laughs) anyways, you know, you know, this, this kind of thing where you're pivoting and you're, you're trying to hold the ball and not, not make a mistake. That was me. I went into elementary uh, basketball and, and all I could think was, where's Chris, where's Chris, where's Chris? Chris?" And, and my back was to the clock. My back was to the basket and all I could see, all I could hear, was the the fans going crazy. And they told me to just shoot the ball. And so, I, so I got the ball, and I kind of pivoted backwards. And the six foot seven guy goes, uh, he's right above me, and so I just had to rainbow it kind of over him. And the buzzer goes off, and I hit the shot. <laughs> Provincial championship shot. So that story took a long time. Every time I tell it I just relive the moment, you know, I uh, This is before the days of YouTube and videos and so I don't have it. So the only way I can remember it is to retell it. Uh, I didn't have a point to that story. I just uh, I did have a point. Jesus <laughs> looks down the bench and he calls your name and he says, Get in the game. And you got all these reasons and excuses why you're not good enough to get in the game. Panonizes perfume maker, get in there, build a wall. Maybe you look at your finances, you look at your talent, you look at the time you have and you say, I'm actually not good enough to get in the game, but church is not a spectator sport. And it's hard for us to understand this because we come into a theater and there's lights on and, we, and you're sitting in the dark and I'm standing on stage and we, we start to believe in this idea that church is a spectator sport. But there's no such thing as having too many players on the court in the mission of Jesus. Jesus. There's no such thing as having too many players on the court in the mission of Jesus. And often the only reason we we don't engage in what Jesus is doing in us or in the world around us is because we've disqualified ourselves. Jesus calls our name and we say, do you know who I am? I was the, you know, there's lots of better options. But Jesus doesn't measure our competence in the same way that the world does. We look, we look at a situation from the outside, like the, the widow and the rich people that we talked about at the beginning of the service. And from the outside, it doesn't look like she's giving much, but Jesus she said, all I need is this radical generosity, this radical sacrifice in your heart. All I need is for you to respond in your heart. Not to look at all the reasons and all the excuses why you can't engage, but to respond to me because I have confidence in you and I've called you. I've invited you to get into the game. And I believe that there's many of us that have just become content sitting on the bench. And we've, we actually bought into this lie that this is what church is about. I get to sit on the bench, I get to travel with the team, I get to cheer, um, but I don't get to play. But I believe that Jesus is calling every single one of us to get in the game. Nehemiah 3, this, this, this miraculous building of the Jerusalem wall, only happened because every single person, well, I don't know about every single person, but a lot of people responded and said, Nehemiah, we're in. We're in. And if you go through Nehemiah chapter 3, you'll see these types of phrases. We'll show them on the screen here. So let's go to, the, go to the next slide. People from the town of Jericho work next to them, and then beside them, next to them, next to them, next to him, next to him, next to him. You go, you go through it 28 times, there's a phrase like this, next to him, after them, beside them. This picture of every person leaning in in their portion of the wall. And the, the amazing thing is the name of Nehemiah is never mentioned in chapter 3. Nehemiah is never mentioned in chapter 3. We can fall into this lie of thinking that you know, it's the leader or it's the, the pastor, it's, it's their job to go build the wall, but the reality is God's calling us to something beyond what any specific leader or person can do. Nehemiah's leadership is felt in chapter 3, but he's never named. And there's a lot of church stats that suggest that 20% of the people in a church community are carrying 80% of the load. And there's a lot of truth to that, whether that's finances, that's time, serving. It's usually the same group of 20% that are doing 80% of the work. And I want to suggest this morning that it's tiring if you're that 20% and you look and there's not somebody next to you on the wall. It's tiring, but it's encouraging and life-giving. Those moments where you look next to you and you realize that everybody's on the wall, taking their portion of the wall, and we're all building this thing together. And sometimes there's reasons why we don't get on the wall because we, we got we got our own personal stuff that we're trying to figure out. Um, but there's this fascinating part in in uh, Nehemiah three. So after the Nehemiah three kind of goes through the dung gate, the water gate, the horse gate. So it's going around the, going around the wall. We get to Nehemiah 3, verse 20. Well, Nehemiah 3, verse 20 says this. Next to him was Baruch, son of Zebai, who zealously repaired an additional section from the angle to the door of the house of Eliashib. Say Eliashib. Eliashib. You remember him from verse 1? Eliashib, the high priest. Merimoth, son of Uriah and grandson of Hakaz rebuilt another section of the wall extending from the door of Eliashib's house, to the end of the house. So if we go to the next slide, we look at the temple. So, let's get one more. The green star is where Eliashib is working. The orange star is where Eliashib's house is. And I find it fascinating that Eliashib would, he would lean in and do his portion of the wall and there was no personal benefit to him. But yet, When everybody leans in and does their portion, we take care of each other's needs. Everybody leaned in and did their section of the wall, and Eliashib, as a result of that, had his house, the rebuilding of his house, actually taken care of. And I believe that sometimes, you know, if we're Eliashib, it's like, well, you're asking me to build the the sheep gate, but my house is over here by the fountain gate. And uh, who's going to build my stuff, right? And we start worrying about us. I believe that when we all lean in, we all do our part. We all are generous in our time, in our talent, in our treasure, that our needs as a community begin to be taken care of. That's how God designed it. That's how God designed it. And I believe that there's something alive in us that come, that something comes alive in us when we actually give of ourselves sacrificially in our time, talent, and treasure. We won't read it, but in Matthew 25, there's a parable of talents. One guy's given five, the next guy's given two, this guy's given one. The guy's given five, invents, invests it, he gets five more, the master comes back and, and sees that he's gained five more, he says, well done, my good and faithful servant, you've been faithful with what I've given you, I'm going to give you more. Come share in your master's happiness or in the joy of your master. Happens the same with the guy who was given two. He invests two and he gets two more. Master comes back and there's four now. He says, well done. Share in your master's happiness. Share in your master's joy. The next guy is given one. And he buries it. And the master comes back and the the guy who's given one says, here's your one. And the master says, you wicked and lazy servant. Why did you do that? And he responds by saying, "I knew you were a hard man, reaping what you didn't sow, harvesting what you didn't plant." What he's really saying is, "Why would I work for something that I'm personally not going to benefit from? Why would I give sacrificially or work hard to with the talents that you've given me if you're just going to come and take take away everything I've worked for. The third servant has this uh, me-centered kind of mentality. And the flip in the parable happens when the master comes and takes away even the one bag of silver that he gave that servant. And he says, even what you have will be taken away from you. And the irony when we compare it to the other two servants is when they lived, when they worked for their master, when they lived this generous, sacrificial way, the master comes and says, come share in your master's happiness. I believe that there's a certain quality of life, of blessing that we all desire, that is actually only accessible through sacrificial generosity. And if we're trying to hoard what we have because we're living in fear of not having enough, we're actually, we actually get robbed in the long run. Bruce Coburn, my favorite songwriter, says this, I've got this thing in my heart I must give you today. It only lives when you give it away. So if you feel like you're hoarding your time, your treasure, your talent, I just ask you, how is that, that working for you? Are you increasing in your joy? Are you increasing in your happiness? Or do you find yourself getting more fearful, more frustrated, more bitter? Might I suggest that learning to live sacrificially in generosity unlocks a level of joy and contentment that we wouldn't know otherwise? I'm going to invite the worship team as we close. The the Israelites are working together to build the temple. What was the significance of the temple? It was it was unique to Israel. It was indicative of their covenant. It was the place where they worshipped God. It was the place where God dwelt in a unique and powerful way. And so we're not talking this morning about a physical temple or a physical wall. But this is what 1 Corinthians chapter 3 says. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3, don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in your midst? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy that person, for God's temple is sacred and you together are that temple. Jesus says, I sum up the whole Old Testament in two things, love God, love people. Might I suggest that it's actually not about building a physical wall, If you didn't get the metaphor, I'm not talking about a physical wall. But in the New Testament, we learn that the people of God, that human beings are actually created to be the temple of God. The wall was intended to actually protect that which was closest to God's heart, protect the covenant that God made with His people. We need to lean into our section of the wall. We need to actually lean in together in a way that expresses our love for God and our love for one another. We need to give sacrificially of our time, of our talent, and our treasure. Because this is the call of Jesus on every one of us. This is the call of Jesus when he looks down the bench and he says, get in the game. What does that mean? It means, how are you actually living sacrificially for me? How are you actually giving yourself sacrificially of the person next to you? That's the temple of God. Look at the person next to you. They are the temple of God. Nobody's looking at the person next to you. I know it's awkward, but look, look at the person next to you. That person next to you is the temple of God. And the invitation is lean in. Take your section Protect the temple. Build into your brothers and sisters. Give sacrificially for one another. Give sacrificially to God of your time, your talent, and your treasure. Why don't you stand? Let me pray. Father, I thank you for the time and the talent and the treasure that you've given each one of us. Lord, prevent us from the danger of looking next to us and saying, well, they got five eggs and I only got two. We recognize that that's not even the point. Lord, save us from this game of comparison. Save us from self-protection. Lord, I pray that you would increase the desire and faith for us to live sacrificially in the spirit of radical generosity. Lord, the the enemy wants to come and convince us that, you know, if you give, then what's left for you? But that's actually a lie in the kingdom of God, that if you give, there's more for you. And then when you have more, you keep giving. But I pray that this church community be a place where we lean in together. There's no 2080 principle, but every person is leaning in with whatever talent, with whatever treasure, whatever time that you've given them, and we we're saying yes to you, Jesus, yes to you, what you want to do among us, yes to our brothers and sisters beside us, that we're willing to live in a sacrificial way for each other, for your glory and our joy, in Jesus' name. I felt as we were worshiping there that uh, that the Lord wants you to know that you have enough. Uh, for, for whatever it looks like for you to lean in in this time, that you have enough for what he's asking you to do. Uh, you have enough time, you have enough talent, you have enough treasure for the thing that he's calling you to do. And so if you walk out of here this morning thinking, well, oh, I just... I felt like I had to do more, and I don't know what else I have to give. I, I, it's, this is a word of encouragement. Like if you, I was on the bench, and it was, like, it was frightening, but it was exciting that God would look at me and say, I, I have a role for you to play, and I believe in you that you can do what I'm calling you to do. And so I don't know what that means for you with your time or your talent or your treasure. But you have enough. And if, you're not, if you don't feel like your talent is being utilized or you're not serving, I would encourage you to think of, God, where are you calling me to lean in with my talent, with what you have, with what you've given me? And every one of you has talent that God's given you for what he's called you to do. Uh, if it's treasure, you know, we talked about that last week, I would encourage you to, to start pushing yourself financially that you actually you feel like it's impacting it's affecting uh, the way you're living because I think as we, as we stretch ourselves and we give sacrificially, now we're giving room for God to actually uh, meet us and know us in a deeper way. So I just thought I bless you this morning. I, I trust that God uh, will show you what that means for you in the season to lean in. Uh, and I do want to pray for those that don't feel like they have enough. Um, and if you want specific prayer at the end of the service, we'll have prayer teams available at the front. Um, I'll be available as well. I would love to pray for you. Um, but if you're in a season, I know we're in an economic uh, hard time right now. If you're in a season um, of just struggling economically, I, I want to pray for you. If you're in a place where you don't feel like you have the time or the talent to do something significant, I want to pray for you because those are lies. So, Father, uh, I lift up my brothers and sisters here this morning uh, who feel uh, they're taken up in this current of economic downturn. And I know, Lord, often the response is to, to, to squeeze and to, to hold on to everything tightly. Lord, I pray that they would know your provision in this season. Lord, I pray for a vulnerability for them to reach out and to invite others into their journey, because often it's through other brothers and sisters uh, that we experience your provision. Lord, I pray for those who don't feel like they have the time in this busy culture, that you would highlight in their spirit uh, maybe the things that they're spending time doing that actually you're, you're not asking them to do, that you would increase uh, their spare time, the, the, the time they have to actually be generous and sacrificial. Lord, I pray for those in this room that don't feel like they have the talent. Um, I pray against the lie that says you're not good enough or you don't have a role to play, Lord. Uh, we recognize that there's a destiny in this room for every person and every seat. That you've given them passions and abilities and a heart. Um, And Lord, I pray that they would feel empowered by your Spirit to step out and give what they have. Praise in Jesus' name. Amen.